Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Well, hi, everyone. Uh, it is great to be worshiping with you together today, whether you are tuning in uh, as, a, as a core group or in your room or in your dorm room watching on your laptop. I'm just excited to be able to worship with you together today. Uh, my name is Josh, and I am on staff with Chi Alpha, and it is my joy to bring the message to us tonight. In the middle of a series this semester, uh, going through the book of Revelation, uh, and we're calling the series Revealing Ultimate Reality. Uh, that's because the book of Revelation gives us a set of lenses through which we can see the unseen realities of the present moment, as well as the unseen realities of the future. With this new perspective, we can really get to figure out what ultimate reality really is. See, the book of Revelation isn't a book that's intended to fuel speculation about the end times or something like that, uh, but rather it's a book that is intended to fuel our faithfulness in Jesus, our hope in Jesus, our discipleship and obedience to Jesus as we follow him. Thought I'd take a moment to introduce my family. So I believe up on the screen will be a picture of my kids, Carter and Aubrey. And actually last week we celebrated Carter's fifth birthday, Star Wars style. And uh, it, it really got me thinking about, man, five years in one way seems like a really long time. But in other ways, I can remember those few first few moments of parenting like it was yesterday. One of my first responsibilities that I was given by the nurse uh, after Carter was born was to change his first diaper. Now, true confession, I'd never changed a diaper before in my life, and I was petrified. I didn't know what to do. He'd just come out. He was so small and fragile. I was afraid I was going to break him. But I persevered. It went okay. Got him cleaned up. And then you'll never believe it. A few days later... They let us leave the hospital with Carter. They thought I was qualified enough at that point to do this without professional supervision. I wasn't sure if it was true at that point or not. But anyways, fast forward a few weeks, uh, and we were at home, um, still half awake most of the time, and I was up at the changing table, changing Carter's diaper again, and I was getting better at it by that point. But as I was changing his diaper, I realized I forgot to get a new diaper. So I put my hand on him to make sure he doesn't fall to his death. And then I reach uh, out over yonder to get a new diaper. But all of a sudden, old Faithful starts spewing everywhere. And there's pee going on the walls and I'm getting all wet and I'm just trying to make, improvise a splash guard with my hands to make sure that, you know, I protect my eyes. And uh, it, man, it was a mess. It was a total disaster. And the thing, thing was, nobody told me that that was ever gonna happen. Man, I can't tell you how many times as a new parent, I thought, I wish I had playbook. I wish I knew what to do. I wish I knew what this little munchkin was getting ready to do. What about you? Have you ever been peed on? Hopefully not. But have you ever been in a situation where you would give anything to have the playbook? Maybe when it comes to your classes, you give anything to have your professor's playbook. 
You'd love to know, man, how is she gonna grade this test? How lenient is he gonna be if I ask for an extension? Or what about in relationships? We'd probably all have a lot more confidence if we, uh, in pursuing relationships with others, if we uh, knew what the other person was thinking, if we had their playbook. What about in this current season of life? How do we navigate this pandemic? How are we supposed to thrive? I mean, we all know things are difficult in this season. It's a season where some of us have experienced uh, greater struggles with mental health. It's a season where it's been just difficult to do well academically. It's a season where uh, it's been marked for many people by loneliness just because of how isolated we are. We've never been here before, and there is no pandemic for what we do in a pandemic. Well, what about when it comes to the big story, the cosmic battle between uh, good and evil, the spiritual warfare that's going on all around us? I mean, for honest, if we could get hold of any playbook, I mean, the playbook of the enemy would be the one to get hold of, right? I mean, that would be the, that'd be the, the gold to get a hold of as we seek to follow Jesus. And how valuable would that be? Tonight, <laughs> funny enough, uh, actually, we have it. That's right, tonight we are going to take a look into the playbook of the enemy and the chapter in Revelation we're going to look at is going to help us understand how the powers of darkness operate and how they attempt to discourage and defeat us. And by looking at the enemy's playbook tonight, we will learn how we can thrive in the face of opposition. Isn't that awesome? So that's what we're going to do tonight. So open with me to Revelation chapter 13. So uh, as we get started, two weeks ago, uh, when we looked at chapter 12 of Revelation, we were introduced to this character, the dragon, uh, which we are told in chapter 12, verse 9, is Satan. And uh, we're told Satan's goal is to lead the whole world astray. In other words, his goal is to lead people and cultures away from God, away from his plans and purposes for them. And this week, what we're going to see is that much of the work that the dragon does is through uh, these two beasts that we'll be introduced to, uh, the beast of the sea and the beast of the land. And what we're going to see is that they are a parody of the one true God who reveals himself to us in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That They are a, a sort of a false trinity. They're at work in the world and are coming against God, against his kingdom, and against his people. What we're going to see as we look into the playbook is that each of these three have a way that they operate in the world and in our lives. Um, so what we're going to do is look at the playbook to understand each of these beasts so that we can be ready to know how to respond when they come against us. So, as I already said, uh, a couple of weeks ago we were introduced to the dragon. And what we know about the dragon is that he is the source of all demonic schemes and power. Uh, in verse 12, or in chapter 12, uh, verse 10, we're actually get a picture into what the key tactics of the dragon are. In verse 10 of chapter 12, it says that the dragon or Satan is the accuser of our brothers and sisters. The accuser of our brothers or sisters. First thing we need to know is that our enemy is an accuser. What does it sound like when the accuser speaks to us? 
What does accusation sound like? Uh, let me give you a few examples. Often, the enemy will accuse you of how sinful you are and claim that there is no way that you could be accepted by a holy God. But remind you of the evil and dark things from your past, um, as well as your present sin. And you might hear things from the accuser like, you hypocrite, you pretender, you are such a failure. Oh, you, you're, you're a really good Christian. And then you go off and do that or say that. There's, there's no way that God could use you. There's, I mean, let's be real. There is no way that God loves you. Have you ever heard that from the accuser? How do we defeat this powerful accusation? We defeat it with the cross. We say, you know what? You're right, accuser. I am a sinner, but I have a great savior. He shed his blood for me and gave me his righteousness. And I don't stand before God in my own merit, but I stand before God in the finished work of Christ. Actually, thank you, accuser, for reminding me the depth and wonder of God's grace that he would love me and save me through Christ in spite of my sin. We overcome accusation by the blood of the lamb, the grace that's found in the cross. Or uh, perhaps accusation sounds like this. You're, you're not good enough for people. You know that? Like, you're, you're not funny enough. You're not engaging enough. You're not smart enough. I mean, for, for honest, you don't even belong at UVA. I just think you're going to be on your own forever. You're hopeless. You're helpless. You are unusable. You are insufficient. Accusation after accusation like that is spewed at us by the enemy, and he uses that to lead us astray to buy into those lies. But the blood of Jesus speaks a different word. Here's the blood of Jesus speaks about you. In Christ, as you trust him, you are totally forgiven. You are welcomed into God's family as a beloved child. It says that in Christ, you are fully capable and valuable, and you're able to fulfill the good works which God has prepared in advance for you to do. In Christ, you're totally forgiven, extremely valuable, deeply loved, and fully capable. This is the truth of the, of the gospel that destroys the shame-inducing accusations of the enemy. These are the things that we need to cling tightly to in the face of these lies, of these accusations. So, just to summarize, how do we fight the dragon in accusation? By the blood of the Lamb. We preach the gospel to ourselves over and over again. We remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. The goal of the dragon is to discourage us into disobedience, but we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Next, uh, so that's the dragon, and that's the, the piece of the playbook on him. So next we are introduced to the enemy that is fueled by the dragon, the beast of the sea. Let's read verses 1 and 2 out of chapter 13. <clears throat> read the following. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns. And on each head it had a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard. 
but it had feet like those of a bear and the mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and his and, and great authority. <clears throat> okay, so we see in, in verse two that this, in verses one and two, that this uh, beast has come out of the sea and it, it's like this funky, evil, bad Mr. Potato Head that has uh, leopard, bu- bu- leopard parts and lion parts and bear parts and then it gets its power from the dragon and its authority from the throne. Like, ooh, what, is, what is going on? Like, what is being symbolized by this beast? Well, to understand what's being said, we have to go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Daniel, where the prophet Daniel recorded a series of dreams during the time that um, Israel was in captivity in Babylon. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel had a dream of four beasts who came out of the sea, and among those four beasts were a lion, a bear, and a leopard. Sounds familiar. And what we see in the book of Daniel is that these beasts represented the empires which were in opposition to God's people. So the, the, the Babylonians and the Medes and the, the Persians uh, were represented by these animals. So if we take that and, and apply it to what is a, a clear um, uh, reference to the Older Testament, uh, what we see is that this beast that John is describing is a composite of them all. So in other words, the beast that is fueled by the dragon is the power um, and is in similarity to all these preceding wicked empires. So we take from this is that the beast symbolizes uh, human structures and human kingdoms that have ejected God from the center and are against God and his people. For the churches, the book of Revelation, this this is represented by the Roman Empire. They were... uh, the beast of the sea of the day. In verse three, we'll continue reading to learn more about the beast. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound. The fatal wound had been healed. So in other words, this is a picture of the resiliency and the repetition of these structures throughout history. You think you failed the beast, but then another one comes up in its place. One empire falls and another rises that embodies the same hostilities to God and his people. So what is the tactic of this beast of the sea? And we're getting ready to see is that the goal tactic of this beast is to intimidate us into disobedience. Intimidation is his tactic. Let's look in verse 7. It says this, that uh, the beast was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, nation. In other words, this beast is at work bringing opposition and hostility and violence and intimidation to God's people all over the globe. Now, I was reading this week about some of the countries in the world where converting to Christianity is a capital offense. Now, there are brothers and sisters in Christ right now who are refugees because they have fled religious persecution. There are also brothers and sisters in Christ right now who are in re-education camps and in prisons because what are they guilty of? Worshiping Jesus. That's it. There are also more subtle ways that this intimidation plays out, where the intimidation isn't jail time, but stigma and hatred and marginalization. 
The enemy will use whatever he can to intimidate us into disobedience. The Gospel of John in chapter 12, um, we see that in, you know, in the days of Jesus, some, some people who believed in Jesus but chose not to openly acknowledge it because they were afraid that they would be kicked out of the synagogue. They'd be kicked out of their place of, of worship and really out of their place of community life. At the end of John 12, these people's attitudes are summarized in a way that cuts to the heart of the enemy's tool of intimidation. It says in John chapter 12, verse 43, it says this, For they loved human praise more than praise from God. They loved human praise more than praise from God. They were intimidated by what others would say about them for choosing to follow Jesus. Fact is, we must all answer that question. Are we going to live for the praise of the crowd, for the praise of uh, uh, our, our dorm mates, for the praise of our classmates, for the praise of our friends, for the praise of UVA culture, for the praise of God? This is fundamental to our faithfulness to Jesus because it's rarely been popular to be a follower of Jesus. And when it has been, it hasn't always been good for the church. So we face this in our context. Maybe you resonated with Andrew's story last week. We shared about how he was afraid to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit to offer prayer to a stranger because he didn't want to look foolish. The enemy wants to intimidate us do not following the Holy Spirit whenever there might be a cost. There's many ways in which this can play out during our time here at UVA. So how do we overcome this tactic of intimidation? What's the solution? Well, I think when the enemy tries to get us to bow down and look down and fear and to kind of curl up, that, that we need to lift our gaze, look to the throne, look to Jesus, remember who he is. And more often than not, we do that by worshiping him in the power of the Spirit. So interesting that when John, uh, as he's writing the book of Revelation, really laying out the gritty nature of the Christian life, yet at the same time, he packs the book of Revelation full of worship songs. One author, Eugene Peterson, pointed out this fact, and he pointed out that reality by saying the following. Peterson says, John can think of nothing better than to call them to worship. His insistence is that they contextualize everything that they think, experience, and feel in the act of worship. So by worship, by worshiping God, we can overcome the intimidation of the enemy. And secondly, we overcome intimidation by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes us Christians of steel, He's the, one, he's the one that makes us uh, be able to be pressed down but not crushed, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. The disciples, if we face it, they were not superheroes. We see that in the gospel. But, but when they were filled with the Spirit, they went from being wavering wimps to people of boldness who said to their uh, oppressors and, and to their jailers that we must obey God, not you. So what will you do when you face intimidation? I hope that we will worship and turn to Jesus in those moments of fear and stand in the power of the Spirit. As John says at the end of chapter 13, with 
patient endurance and faithfulness. So that is the second beast, the beast of the sea. Then finally, we're introduced to our final beast of the night, uh, the beast of the earth. What did we learn about this beast? Okay, let's turn uh, to verse 11. It says the following. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It's interesting. In the book of Revelation, lamb is mentioned 29 times. That's a lot of times. 28, 28 times John is referencing Jesus, that Jesus is the lamb. But in the single instance, lamb describes the beast. The beast is what Jesus would call a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now, what you see when you look at scripture is that the enemy is really described in one of two ways. He's described as a roaring lion looking for who he can devour. That's kind of what we got from the beast of the sea a few minutes ago, the intimidator. But then also, Scripture describes the enemy as someone who parades around as an angel of light to deceive. And that's kind of what we get with the picture of the enemy being like a little lamb. The key tactic of this beast of the earth, well, let's see. Let's read verse 14 and find out. It says this, Because of the signs it was given power to perform, on behalf of the first beast, it deceived it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So what's the tactic of this third beast? That's right, it's deception to deceive us. We see that it has been given power to deceive the inhabitants of the earth in order to get people to place their trust in the kingdom of man and not in God and his kingdom. Now, in the Roman Empire, you know, when the book of Revelation was written, the beast of the land was embodied by the emperor cult. Romans had to devote their allegiance to the emperor and worship him as Lord. In order to live the good life within a Roman Empire, you had to participate in this worship to the emperor. Now, in our culture, you know, we don't have an emperor to worship, um, yet this deception comes at us in a very real way. So just to summarize quickly before we get into some uh, ways in which this deception plays out. So what do we see? The goal of this beast is to deceive us into disobedience, to have us buy into the illusion. And this illusion often is to make evil look good. This idea of deception is what makes it so important for us to know the truth and be saturated in God's word. Because, uh, you know, there always be another form of deception around the corner. I'm not sure if they still do this, but years ago, the way they would uh, prepare bank tellers to recognize counterfeit bills was not by giving them, giving them a bunch of counterfeits to learn what those feel like, because those could be feel like all sorts of variety of things and different ways of making those counterfeits. No, it was the way bank tellers were told how to discern a real bill was by having experience with the real deal, learning what real money felt like in the hand and what it felt like when they counted it, so that when a counterfeit came along, they would immediately recognize it. And this is the same with us, that we need to be so steeped in God's word and saturated in scripture that when a counterfeit comes our way, we can immediately recognize it. So let me give you a few examples of what deception 
could sound or look like in our culture today. First, uh, there's the deception today and how the good life is defined. Culture tells us that the good life is defined in living an Instagrammable life and having lots of money, uh, maybe being attractive, being sexually fulfilled, uh, or in success. The list goes on and on and on. But the Bible tells a much different story. The Bible says that none of these will satisfy your deepest longings or give your life ultimate meaning. As Andrew shared last week, culture says that ultimate fulfillment comes from making you, your story, fundamentally about you. But the Bible tells a different story. The Bible says that your life is part of a greater story where God is at the center. The good news is that God has brought us into his story of bringing restoration to the world and that God has given us a hope and a purpose so much greater than we could create for ourselves. And that we find the good life. And then second, uh, there's the deception about the nature of the Christian life. What's that about? Well, the enemy, um, if he's honest with us, which he's never honest with us, uh, he, he wants us to practice a crossless Christianity. The beast wants us to believe that if there is a cross involved, if there is self-sacrifice involved, that is not what God wants for you. Yet, the fact is that following Jesus will often make our lives harder. In fact, the passage that we're reading tonight uh, ends by spelling that out in clear detail. The chapter ends by pointing out that those who buy into the deception receive what's called the mark of the beast on their foreheads and their wrists. Um, The number... Uh, 666 is basically the number of fallen humanity or the number of incompleteness. And we're also given a picture of those who don't take the mark. Let's read verses 16 and 17. It says this, that the beast also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast, with a number of its name. So what do we read? In other words, if you didn't take the mark, you would be ostracized from everyday life in the empire. If you didn't take the mark that you couldn't buy or or sell or do basic things to to function as a human being, that that you'd pay the price big time to not, not give in to the deception and to not take the mark of the beast. When we follow Jesus and reject the enemy's deception, we may pay a price. It may cost our reputation or a job offer or a relationship or a number of other things. Yet it's interesting that at the beginning of chapter 14, we get a picture of another group of people who have a different mark. Let's read Revelation 14, verse 1. Says this. Then I I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, and uh, standing on Mount Zion, and with him one hundred and forty-four thousand who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So we're introduced to this group of people that were marked by God's name and by the Lamb. In other words, they had lived for God, they worshipped God, they obeyed Him, and, and that because of that, their lives were marked by Him. It's, it says later on in that section that, that um, <clears throat> what does it say it? That they, ah, yes, it says this, that they follow the lamb wherever he goes. They follow the lamb 
wherever he goes, no matter the cost, no matter what the enemy threw their way, they followed the lamb wherever he goes. And as a result, they're given honor of worshiping God before his throne. So my question is, we think about deception, and what, what will your life be marked by? Will the deception of the beast work its way into your heart, which, if we're honest, is so easy for that to happen? Or will you choose to live according to the truth of our glorious God? And will you choose to follow the Lamb wherever he leads you? So that's the third beast. Well, as we close tonight, I want you to think about what part of the enemy's playbook do you need to be most aware of? What tactic of the enemy do you seem most susceptible to right now? Are you susceptible to the accusation of the dragon? If so, will you respond with the grace and the forgiveness that Jesus offers you, that, that he is the one who declares your identity and not the enemy? Second, maybe you find yourself tonight susceptible to the intimidation, the beast of the sea. If that's the case, will you reorient yourself and saturating yourself in worship of God, crying out to the Holy Spirit for power, for help? Because, you know, the fact is that that we are not here alone to fight these beasts on our own, but face it, if it was just me versus the beast, I couldn't do it. But Jesus has given us himself. He's given uh, given us the Holy Spirit so that we can be victorious over the enemy. And finally, maybe you're dealing with uh, the issue of deception. That as you think about your life, and as you think about even the past weeks of your life, you you realize you've acted out of deception. You've made choices based in deception that ways in which you're living your life is just um, not in accordance with the, the, the truth of God and who he is. And um, if that's the case, I'd just like to ask the question, what, what are you going to choose to be marked by? Uh, will we conform to the deceptions that are so prevalent all around us, even in our own hearts? Or will we saturate ourselves in scripture? Know the God who, who is and the God who loves us we hold to whatever is true, no matter whatever it may cost us, no matter wherever the lamb may lead. I'm going to close out our time tonight with kind of those three questions. And I'll encourage you as we prepare to enter into a time of worship to, to reflect on um, just how grateful we can be tonight, that, that we, we know the playbook of the enemy, that we know what he is up to, and that we know a God who is more powerful than anything we'll ever come against. So would you pray with me as we enter into worship? Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you uh, for this word tonight. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. Lord, we thank you that, that you have overcome. And Jesus, tonight, as we reflect on this uh, truth, I pray that you would speak to each one of our hearts, Lord, wherever the enemy has gotten a foothold in our lives, Um, wherever we are struggling tonight, God, I I pray that we would just um, bring that area of our life to you, uh, cry out to you, and and allow you to be um, sufficient when it comes to uh, 
uh, overcoming anything in our lives. So God, I, I pray that you would be with us as we worship you right now, um, as we reflect on um, how you'd lead us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com. 